This episode of The Real is brought to you by Chernobyl on HBO. The limited series was hailed by critics as powerful and haunting, truly excellent television, and as chilling as it is essential. 19 Emmy nominations, including Outstanding Limited Series. Visit hbo.com slash FYC for more on Chernobyl. This is $100,000, and it's all yours if you help us identify the persons behind the murders of our children in Atlanta. Another time reported missing in Atlanta. I'm sending you both. I want you there for the duration. To all these children, one kill. I believe that to be the case. It's statistically rare for serial killers to cross racial lines. It's also statistically significant that the Klan kills black people. You get him out of there. The second season of the television show Mindhunter has just been released on Netflix. The show continues to center around the FBI's behavioral science unit set in the early days of the profiling of serial killers. This season features appearances by David Berkowitz and Charles Manson, while also taking in the devastating series of crimes that have come to be known as the Atlanta Child Murders. So joining me to talk about the show, we have Times TV editor Matthew Brennan and Times TV critic Lorraine Ollie. Thank you both for being here. Thank you. Thanks, Mark. And now maybe as a way to get started, I want to talk a little bit about the fact that this is the second season of the show. Matt, did you watch the first season? Were you already a fan of the show? I watched the first season, but in fact, I was somewhat critical of the first season. Jonathan Groff, who plays a Holden Ford, an FBI special agent, who is key in the development of what we know as criminal profiling at the Behavioral Sciences Unit, ends up getting into some thornily close relationships with the serial killers that he's interviewing to gather information for them to include in their study of this phenomenon. And I felt like it ended up going a little too far into kind of lionizing his characters, getting that in the thick of it. But there are some really interesting elements and executive producer David Fincher who also directs a number of the episodes across the two seasons, is someone who, with his film Zodiac, has shown to be interested in this and has a very distinct aesthetic for that time period, which is not the sort of, like, avocado greens and, like, fun palettes that we associate with the 70s. Harvest gold. Right. It's much more, like, browns and grays and kind of bureaucratic anonymity, which I think really works for this kind of show. And Lorraine, what were your feelings about the first season of the show? You know, I reviewed the first season. I did not like it for different reasons. Number one, I need to say up front that I'm like a huge true crime fan. I'm sick about it. And I admit it here. Um, This may be the end of my career here, Mark. Uh, But I do... (laughs) watched lots of ID channel stuff. I do watch tons of crime documentaries. So I was really interested in this going in. I found it really draggy and slow. And I also get it that they're tackling this subject that's looked at as kind of low-hanging fruit in many areas of television. And they wanted to be super smart and in-depth about it. But I think they kind of spiraled into this like we're going to really stretch this out we're going to really explore it we're going to and it's like no you're going to bore me while you're doing this <laughs> and how can how can serial killers be boring and i was like yeah no i'm not in on this i'm okay i can watch something else well it's interesting that this second season it's almost as if they've taken your notes that i think that where the first season felt like kind of a lot of the worst aspects of david fincher's filmmaking that sort of as you were saying Lorraine that sort of draggy overly granular interest in things that sort of like 
anti-aesthetic aesthetic that he often likes where things like look really ugly kind of on purpose. And in this season, it seems like they've turned up the human factor a little bit. I think we're getting a little more interaction among the characters on the unit. And then also having the episodes directed not just by David Fincher, but also Andrew Dominic and Carl Franklin. I mean, that is just a fantastic group of directors. Matt, maybe you can talk to this. Each one of those directors brings their own style to their episodes. And so where television is so often thought of as a writer's medium, a showrunner's medium, it feels like Mindhunter is a more director-focused show than a lot of times we're getting on television. I think with Fincher as an executive producer, that's probably true in the sense that he leads the show with a director's eye. And I do think that having those three directors actually corresponds with the arc of the season, which the first couple episodes try to dispense with the plot of season one. Episode three introduces the Atlanta child murders case. And then there's sort of a middle stage where the attention of the show is divided in a couple different directions between Holden, who is in Atlanta, his partner, Bill Tench, played by Holt McElhaney, who is half in Atlanta and half distracted by troubles at home involving a dead child discovered at one of his wife's real estate properties. She's a real estate agent. And then psychologist Wendy Carr, played by Anna Torv, feels sidelined completely and so goes off doing interviews with another character that are in some sense completely separate. And then the last group of episodes is very tightly focused on the Atlanta case and on the final stages of catching Wayne Williams, who was eventually convicted in two murders, but not in the murders of any of the children who died. Those, I think, are the strongest of the season. And that, I think, is because actually of taking a writerly approach to it, because it is the payoff of a season-long or almost season-long arc that we've been building up to. I know you interviewed writer Courtney Miles, who this season sort of took the helm and wrote a number of episodes. And did she talk to you about why she took an interest in the Atlanta child murders? And I, and I asked that because the fact that so many of those cases were not solved originally, but they actually have been recently reopened, was that part of the inspiration for focusing on the, the Atlanta child murders with this season? I do think that there is a clear sort of dovetailing of the timing. This year is the 40th anniversary of the discovery of the first bodies in the Atlanta child murders case. It's also uh, been in the news. There is a podcast called Atlanta Monster that came out last year that proved very popular. There was an investigation discovery docuseries that aired in March of this year. And then, as you say, uh, the mayor of Atlanta, Keisha Lance Bottoms, has reopened an investigation to sort of retest the evidence collected in the case because Wayne Williams was never charged, tried, or convicted in any of the killings of the children. And so I do think that Courtney Miles, who is the head writer on this season, took, I think, David Fincher's idea of we should run with this. And because she has personal connections to Atlanta, she took lead on that interviewed a number of people involved in the investigation. Netflix confirmed to me that none of the victims' families were contacted as part of the production on season two, including the sort of representative of the victims' families in the narrative of the season. And so there's a lot of interesting 
issues that are raised by the arc of the narrative. And I think it's, uh, I described it in my story as Mindhunter's thorniest case yet. It is, I think, by far the most complex in terms of the social issues it raises, in, in terms of the atmosphere in which it takes place, and in terms of the sort of openness of the case, because in real life, these crimes have never been solved. And Lorraine, how do you feel about the way that this season, it kind of in, in a sense is operating on three tracks, that there's the personal lives of the FBI agents, there's the interviews with the serial killers, which really do become a show unto itself, and then there's the mystery of the Atlanta child murders. Do you feel like the show is able to kind of keep all three of those tracks moving? Like, does it keep all of its balls in the air? I think the investigation of the Atlanta child murders moves really fast, and I think it holds together, and I think it does sort of weave in and out with the interviews they're doing with the convicted killers in prison. The personal storylines are a little trickier when they're trying to weave them in. I've kind of felt like they were little side stories and, you know, almost kind of like it was this, no pun intended, but like it's dead space. You go out and you're like, oh, okay, here we are. We're talking about their relationship. Uh, let's get back to the killing. And so I felt like that sort of took you out of the investigation, out of the psychological weirdness of sitting there in a prison with a serial killer, with a convicted killer. But it's interesting, you know, to go back and look at the child, the Atlanta child murders now and all the issues it does raise from that time. It's certainly, of course, very topical because you're talking about a distrust of the police and back and forth between the black community and law enforcement. That issue you're talking about decades, if not centuries of this embedded racism there. And they're bringing the KKK into it. Um, they're concerned that, you know, these killings might be perpetrated by the KKK. So you're getting a little background on that. And then I also think the way that law enforcement looked at it at the time, according to this the series, is that, well, you know, look at the way these people are parenting these kids. They're single moms. These kids, you know, they're letting them go out there and sell trinkets for extra money. They're letting them deal drugs. They're letting them do whatever they're doing. So really, these missing kids probably just like it always is when black kids go missing. And it went like that for so long. And that's kind of part of it that I found really, really heartbreaking and really interesting. And I feel like now with this series, one of the bigger points of it is like making sure people care, like making, like bringing that back. Those families, those moms got robbed of that. They got robbed of like anyone caring at that time. And this makes you care. Matt, how do you feel about the way that this series deals with, in particular, the issue of race with regards to the Atlanta child murders? I mean, it brings up a lot of issues that seem very specific to the local politics of Atlanta, but also I think any city in America can understand some of the issues regarding race and policing that they're grappling with. I was impressed by how the arc in the season plays out. When your first introduction to Atlanta is when Holden heads down any um, meets a local FBI agent, a black man named Jim Barney. And the first shot of them together is their meeting in the Atlanta airport, which is in the midst of a major expansion. And the camera pans up to a banner that says, welcome to Atlanta from the mayor. And that mayor was Atlanta's first black mayor. At the same time, they also had their first black police commissioner. And I think that the season does a really excellent job of navigating an incredibly complicated political situation 
that is then layered into a very complicated case. Because what Holden is sort of bringing to the case is an understanding built up over the course of season one that uh, serial killers tend to kill within their racial or ethnic group. And what the families and local law enforcement are bringing to the case is local knowledge that the Klan has been victimizing Black people in the South since the end of the Civil War, essentially. What evidence is there to suspect the Klan? Son, we've got 19 dead Black children. You telling me that's a coincidence? Right. And so there's this real tension. And I think actually um, Jonathan Groff does a really terrific job of portraying someone who is very earnest, but also very ambitious, stepping in it over and over and over again, and yet persisting in his belief that the theory of the case that he has is the correct one. We're going to take a brief break, and we'll be right back. This episode is brought to you by Game of Thrones on HBO. Game of Thrones has critics raving the final season as the biggest show on TV, era-defining, and TV's greatest show of all time. 32 Emmy nominations, including Outstanding Drama Series, the most Emmy-nominated series ever. Visit hbo.com FYC for more on Game of Thrones. Lorraine, you wrote a really terrific piece about the way that the series handles Charles Manson. Manson's played here by the actor Damon Harriman, who also plays Manson in Quentin Tarantino's Once Upon a Time in Hollywood. And as an aside, Harriman also appears as kind of a villain in the recent Australian movie The Nightingale, where he's also really terrific and really creepy. And the the Manson episode of Mindhunter is, they know what they've got there. It's meant to be a centerpiece of the season. The interview with him is just a real showstopper. And can you talk a little bit about how you feel about the way the show handled Manson and and in the show? So, you know, we know him as cult leader. We know him as this 60s figure. And I thought, okay, this is interesting. Going in, they're going to explore a different angle of Manson. They're going to sort of look at him and kind of pull that almost romanticism around him. I hate to say that, but almost like this thing we've elevated him to of just like strange enigma from this other era that could never happen again. And thought this could pair up well with what they're doing with the Atlanta child murders because Charles Manson is a self-admitted white supremacist. He wanted to be part of the Aryan Brotherhood. He's got the swastika tattooed on his head. And the whole idea of his murders, the whole way he sold it to his followers, to his family, was that he wanted to kick off a race war between whites and blacks. And once the blacks had killed off all the whites, uh, he and his clan would still be alive because they would be held out in the desert. He would rise up and rule the blacks because they were, to him, an inferior population and they wouldn't be able to run themselves. So I thought that'll be really interesting if somebody finally explores this angle of Charles Manson more deeply, rather than just saying, yeah, I had these crazy ideas about race, but yeah, wasn't that crazy, this Bon Ranch free love LSD? It's like, wait a minute. I think it plays a huge part in the murders, and I think it's really unexplored, and especially where we're at now when white nationalism, white supremacy is driving these mass murders that are happening, mass shootings. And I thought this is a really great opportunity for them to kind of intersect what we're grappling with now as a culture, as a society, with who this man who charged his followers with multiple murders. And they kind of start grazing it a little bit. They bring it up a little bit. 
you know, his racist background, but then they veer away from it and they kind of focus once again on the, you know, the crazy eyed, you know, it's, it's you who made me, man. You know, and they go into this whole thing, the dude in the bell bottoms, the whole thing. And they come to the conclusion, like, maybe this wasn't about race. Maybe it was all about control. Those murders were all about control. And it's like, I found that really disappointing because the whole idea of especially his brand of white supremacy or the way he talked about it was that whites were losing control. They were losing power. They were losing their place. Of course, it's about control. But what's driving that is this fear, is this fear of the other. And they did not explore that. And I found it really disappointing, especially after Once Upon a Time in Hollywood, which I love that film. But, you know, Manson is so mystical of a character, so untouchable that he's like barely visible in that film. And you never hear anything about what the underpinnings of their motives were. And it was to start a race war. And I just thought that was such a missed opportunity to not bring that into mind, Hunter, when they're going to Atlanta and talking about the KKK potentially killing all these Black children. And so I felt like that piece needed to address what wasn't there and what is often overlooked by Hollywood. Why is it so hard for them to call Charles Manson what he was, a white supremacist whose murderous ideas sprang out of the fear of Black people? Matt, how do you feel about that? What what did you make of the way that the show handled Manson? Well, I agree with Lorraine's assessment that it felt to me like the show edged right up to really looking it squarely in the face. And then I don't know if it lost its nerve or... I think this is potentially an area where sort of Fincher's ultra-subtle aesthetic can work against him. There's this interesting thing where um, Manson is first mentioned in one of the first couple episodes, and Holden's eyes light up at the prospect now that the behavioral science unit has a little cachet because of a smaller case that they've helped solve in season one. Holden feels as though, like, now I'll get to interview the stars of the serial killer firmament. Right, so the he's rock like, star of the repeat-killing world. Right, yes. so he he says, oh, we should talk to Manson. Oh, we can talk to David Berkowitz, the son of Sam. One more thing. Manson is small. Like, really small. Try not to stare. I think if the show had pushed a little harder on that element of Holden being kind of starry-eyed about Manson, it would have made me less critical of them falling back on Manson, the mystical Christ-like figure. So then the question becomes, why make the choice that you did to include Manson as a one-episode sideshow? But I can see, I think, Lorraine's instinct, that could have been a great point of contrast. But it didn't gel. I think the Atlanta Child Murders sequence of events is a much more compelling look at how race plays into what we define as crime, whose crimes we care about, whose crimes we investigate, whose killers we prosecute and sentence. And I think that that is something that is kind of alluded to, but never gels in the Manson segment. I also think in a show where many of the victims of these serial killers are women and they're preying on women, I think you do need that counterbalance because otherwise, as we're saying, Holden's, you know, starting to have these kind of sympathies with the serial killers, it starts to feel very one-sided. And what is good about them going into Atlanta and what is good about them talking to these mothers is you get the victim side of it. You get that pain. You get that humanity there. 
I don't think in two seasons the series has yet confronted in quite the same way how you make a show about men investigating men who've committed sex crimes against women without falling into sexist tropes. And I do think that that is an open question, whether you have a female head writer or not, is how are you going to address this? How are you going to make sure that on the page, in the direction, in the editing, and in the final product, you are really grappling with how ugly these crimes are? I will be curious if they do do a third season, if they find a case that is more like the season one cases, where it's sex crimes against women, but they follow that case over the course of the investigation and see if they can add that level of sort of like depth and complexity to it. And this is an overall issue with crime, true crime on television, is that it's predominantly focused on these sex murder crimes. And when you look at statistics, and I'm going to not have this exactly right, but when you look at statistics, the overwhelming majority of murders are men killing men. Of men killing women, even less of those are sex crimes. So the fact that most of what we see when we're like looking at crime or these procedurals or whatever it is are these sex crimes, it's really, it just calls into question why. The ID channel is almost predominantly that now, you know, what we're looking at, Mindhunter, whatever it is, it's really disturbing. So, Well, it's interesting that the interview with David Berkowitz, the Son of Sam character, that he repeatedly makes this proclamation that in his mind, his murders, he saw sex and violence as separate things. He always gets very touchy when they start to combine sex and violence together, which is something that they, the, the investigators do with most of their other cases. Well, and what they have figured out in the course of interviewing most of the killers in the two seasons is that most repeat killers get some, whether in the moment or after the fact, sexual gratification from their crimes. I think Lorraine's very smart point is we don't make television shows about, for example, domestic abusers who are vastly more likely to then inflict further violence, including death, not just on their partners, but then on other people. There's been a lot of reporting on some of these mass killers that Lorraine brought up earlier had domestic violence incidents in their past. Our pop culture doesn't want to deal with that. And I think it goes back to, and this is really where the problem with the Manson episode becomes the problem with Mindhunter as a whole and with the culture at large. It's actually really easy to dramatize someone who is a fascinating anomaly, as Lorraine put it in her really smart piece, it is much harder to deal with the underlying issues of our society, like white supremacism, like domestic violence, like poverty and underemployment. Those things don't make easy to swallow, sort of deal with the crimes, capture the killer, put him in jail, and then, you know, you can go to bed and wake up and go to work in the morning. And I think that one of the merits of season two of Mindhunter is it shows that it is possible to take a really complicated case and one that has not been proven to have been perpetrated by one serial killer who's in the model of the other ones on the show and make that incredibly compelling. But it is a creative risk to do that. And I imagine that it is also seen 
at some level is a financial risk to do so because there isn't necessarily a built-in audience for that kind of depth and complexity in the way that the true crime broom has shown for other types of crime. It's an anomaly in that genre. Also, I don't know how you feel about it, but the, when the, and I don't think I'm really spoiling anything here, the season does end sort of by focusing on all three of the kind of main FBI characters, each of them sort of at loose ends in their personal lives. And it certainly points towards another season. I mean, I think that Netflix, obviously, there's been a lot of conversation recently about the way that they're canceling a lot of shows, but I think it seems like Mindhunter is one that they will be bringing back for another season. And the end of this season certainly seems to set up what's going to come next. Yeah, Netflix does not release any kind of data on viewership, but my working assumption is that this is based on the responses to our two stories alone, is that this is a reasonably popular show that will get a shot at a third season. And they're not going to run out of material, right? I mean, you can keep going into... Unfortunately, America's got a, a boundless field of serial killers that they can get into or repeat killers. But what's interesting, too, is the idea of closure, because with a lot of these productions, I just wonder, like with Ted Bundy, really, he murdered, they think, maybe over 100 women, and they only really convicted him on two or three cases, I think it was. So in other words, are we just trying to get closure through these productions, through these series, through these documentaries? And is there some way to make sense of these things that don't make sense? And it's almost like, well, okay, we have some kind of control over this. Clearly, we don't. But with the remote in your hand, at least it's like, okay, this kind of makes sense of it. The closure is me watching all these episodes. Okay, and now they're done. There's at least some closure there, for sure. And it was roughly almost two years from between season one and season two. So I don't know if that means for us to continue our conversation around Mindhunter. We should be pinning our calendars for about two years from now for season three. But we're going to wrap up this talk here today. And so I want to thank my colleagues. So Matt, where can folks find your work online? I am on Twitter at The Filmgoer. And Lorraine? And I'm on Twitter at Lorraine Ollie. And I, of course, am at Indie Focus. And so for LA Times Studios and The Real, I'm Mark Olson. Thanks for listening. Thanks to our producer, Katie Cooper, and our engineer, Mike Heflin. Listen to The Real on Apple, Stitcher, at latimes.com slash podcasts or wherever you get your audio. And if you like what you hear, please give us a five-star review.